you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks, we are looking in this series at the life of Hosea. It's a fascinating story. It sounds uh, really not like much else that you'll read in the Bible. God told Hosea to go out, pursue, woo, and marry a prostitute. He eventually did, marrying Gomer and having three children with her. One that was his own, two that were children of other men because Gomer never really left her life of prostitution. By the time we get to chapter 3 in the book of Hosea, Gomer has sunk lower and lower on the social scale. All the details aren't really there, but what appears to have happened is that Gomer is now being sold on the auction block as a slave to pay the debts that she has accumulated. As if being auctioned as a slave weren't bad enough, there was an incredible amount of shame and embarrassment that was added to the process, especially for a woman. You were brought to the town square, put up on a pedestal, stripped of your clothing, and then sold like any other piece of merchandise. You had sunk to the lowest possible point when you were sold as a slave. And that was what was happening to Gomer. She was pretty far off of her life plan at this point. From her plan to pursue her lovers and have them wine and dine her, dress and caress her, perfume and adorn her. Now she's wondering, what will her life become? Is anyone going to step forward and pay her debt? And in whose house will she end up becoming a slave? For whom will she fetch and carry and serve the rest of her life? But God... God had already been at work behind the scenes to redeem her, to give her hope and a future. God had instructed Hosea to go and love his wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. And this, God said, this will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Hosea writes, so I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine. Why? Why did Gomer settle for a bad romance when she could have had true love? And why do we do that with God? Bottom line, I think it's because we really don't grasp grace, even when we fully assume that we do. I don't think we can fathom the sheer, irrational motivation behind divine love. Grace is miraculous and wonderful. It's irrational and simply a little bit nuts. 
we can't fully comprehend grace. We can't put it in a category, and it goes beyond any relationship we've ever experienced in our lives. It can't be fully understood, and it leaves us in wonder and amazement as we experience it. We have no idea how the people responded to Hosea's actions. Here was a good man throwing good money away. He is doing it to buy back an undeserving wife who's betrayed him. What we have to understand is that when the auction's over and he's the winning bidder, he now owns his wife, Gomer. She is a piece of property to him. That's the way the law worked. And as a piece of property, he could have on the spot or when he got home taken her life. Killed her out of spite. The law would have had no recourse. It was his right as the owner of a slave. And yet Hosea didn't kill her. He didn't even take her home and make her a slave. God said, go and buy her and love her again. And so Hosea took her, Gomer, put her clothes back on her, led her into the anonymity of the crowd and began rebuilding their relationship. What people saw there was incomprehensible. They saw a love rekindled between two people. They saw a broken marriage restored. They saw a living human picture of God's love through the prophet's act of loving an unworthy wife. Hosea's example did more to communicate God's love than a hundred prophetic messages could have. God's love is very different than our love. We tend to love each other if, because, when. If somebody doesn't meet our standards, if they don't come through for us, if they don't love us in the way that we think they should then our tendencies are to pull back, to withdraw our love for them, to let our love for them grow cold. We can, in the worst scenarios, grow vindictive or hard towards them. At the very least, we grow callous or indifferent towards them. But God's love is in a category all by itself. His love is completely undeserved. It's a love in spite of, and it never diminishes, never changes. I think sometimes it's hard for us to grasp the depth of God's love for us because of our language barrier. We use the word love to talk about so many things that we enjoy, and we use the same word to describe them all. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we discover a new restaurant, and we tell our friends, I love this restaurant. You know, we eat a new food. We love it. We see a new movie. We love it. We hear a song on the radio and we go, I love that song. And it's the same word that we'll use to describe our feelings for a newborn child, a grandchild, a parent, a grandparent, or our spouse or significant other. We love them. And we love them the same as we love that slice of pizza we had last night. Right? Sometimes yes. That one word describes a broad range of feelings for a broad range of things and people. 
we only have one word to use, love. Other languages aren't so limited. They have different words for different types of love. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And they had a broad range of words to describe the different types of love. In this passage, out of Hosea chapter 3, the word love that's used in the opening verses literally means a loyal type of love. God says to Hosea, your actions towards Gomer will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel. God's describing here with this word a long-term kind of committed love. A bond that connects you for a lifetime. It's the love of a friend that walks alongside us, shoulder to shoulder. A friend who will never leave us, never let us down. Now God knows we can be fickle with our love based on conditions. So he chooses a word for love that's based on the character of the one making the commitment not on the behavior of the one who's receiving the love. God says through Hosea, he's willing to walk with us, alongside of us forever, always, to be our ally in the trenches of life, to do life with us if we'll let him in. What we learn through Hosea's example is that God's love is incomprehensible. We've really done nothing to deserve it. It is always a free gift, always given to people who are unworthy. And while God's blessings might be interrupted by unfaithful actions, his love is never blocked by temporary rejection. Gomer had done nothing to deserve Hosea's love. By rights, she should have been left as a slave on the market. That was what she deserved. It was where her deeds had led her. That was justice by anyone's standards. But for Hosea to go to the market to pay out of his own pocket to redeem her, to take her home as his wife again, that was not only mercy, that was grace. If you hang around Westridge for any length of time, you're going to find out that we talk about grace a lot. In fact, I field a fair number of phone calls every month uh, from people who are checking us out as a church. And rightfully so. Our worship is different. Our messages are different. Our people are a little different. The whole vibe around here is different. I mean, don't get me wrong. You all clean up nice on Sunday morning. (laughs) Most of you. Some of you. We do the best with what we have, right? But the whole vibe around here is different. And we talk about grace a lot. And that leads some people to want to ask a really awkward question. And so I hear it on the phone. I can hear them dancing around the question. They want to ask it. It's awkward. And I let them hang for a little while on the phone. And I just kind of chuckle. And I'll just ask the question for them. Because what they want to ask is, if you talk so much about grace, is your theology liberal, you know? Do you just forget about truth in the midst of all this grace? And I just kind of say that and say, is that really what you're getting at? And they go, okay, yeah, that was kind of it, you know? Like I'd never heard the question before. And so what I tell them is, you know what? We're not liberal in our theology. 
We're just liberal with grace. And I'm really happy if we get known as a church that's liberal with grace. I'm happy to wear that tag because we all need grace. God's grace is not just for perfect people. It isn't just for people who can get it together and keep it together. And it's a good thing because none of us can. There's not a one of us in this room that can keep it together for a long period of time. We all need grace, don't we? Well, that was affirming. The person beside you needs grace, don't they? Yeah, so you'll affirm that one. I'm convinced by everything that I read and by all of my life experiences that we don't really understand grace in its full depth in all of its texture. Think about the guilt that you feel sometimes in your life. Think about it. Think about the mistakes that you've made and the guilt you feel for those. Let's just take one area. What about your anger, your temper in your life that flares up from time to time? I think we all struggle with that at some level. Think about the things that you have said or done that you can't take back. Things you've said or done to the people who matter most in your family. Maybe your kids. Maybe to your parents, if you're a kid. Maybe to your spouse or your significant other. The people you care about most. And for some of you, that's just describing your morning this morning on the way to church. All of the guilt that you feel over the things that you've done wrong in your life can begin to pile up if it's not resolved and can lead to a deeper issue, which is shame. Shame becomes an identity burden. Guilt is associated with feeling bad about the things we've done. Shame goes much deeper. Guilt says, what I did was wrong. I really messed up. Shame says something is wrong with me. Something deeper is broken. I am a mess. Guilt and shame can have a positive purpose in our life. They can. If they drive us to God for forgiveness and grace and healing. That's what Paul was getting at in 2 Corinthians when he said, Godly sorrow brings repentance. It brings a desire in us to do something different, to change And that can lead to salvation, which leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Ultimate unhealthy guilt and shame can drive a wedge between us and God. It can drive a wedge between us and the people we love. It can even lead to self-hatred and self-abuse. Even the Apostle Paul wrestled with guilt and shame. Barriers to God's grace. You see it in his writing in the book, the book of Romans. If you want to read a classic writing on guilt and shame as a barrier to grace, read Romans 6, 7, and 8 in the New Testament. Paul writes there in Romans 7, he says, I want to do what's good, but I don't. And I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. Those verses in Romans 7 are just dripping with guilt. Paul can't get his act together. He keeps on failing. And to keep failing like that over time just leads to guilt. And the guilt leads to shame. He continues on in chapter 7 and he says, What a miserable person I am. 
Who can free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Anybody feel like we've been listening to your prayers? Reading your journal? This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament, talking about his shame, his guilt that threatened to crush him. That guilt and shame in his life was justified based on how he had lived. Just like it's justified in our life. And the solution to guilt and shame isn't simply to tell ourselves that we have to stop feeling that way. It isn't to take a course on self-esteem or self-talk to work our way out of it. The truth is, we have done enough things wrong that we should feel guilty and we could bear shame, but... But, Paul says, there's a solution. And it's found in Jesus. In Romans 8.1, he says, There is now no condemnation, no shame, no guilt for those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's the miracle of grace, which is freely given to us, but cost God everything. He paid dearly to set us free, to redeem us. He paid with the most precious gift he could give, his son, Jesus, who set us free. He died for us, in our place, came back to life. He took away our shame, our forgiveness. He took away our shame and forgives our guilt. Now, there aren't many of us in this room who could identify with Gomer's unique story of prostitution. But if we would take the words from her life where she struggled with prostitution and sexuality and plug in our own struggles, it's a different story. Instead of prostitution and sexuality, we could plug in overeating and comfort food. We could plug in whatever addiction we have and the adrenaline rush we get from fulfilling that addiction, that need. We could plug in gossip and the superiority feeling it gives us to talk about other people. And when we do that, we start to realize that Gomer is simply engaging in a different sin pattern than we have in our lives. Every sin promises to fill a gaping need inside of us. And it never does. So shame and guilt coupled with that gaping need in us keep us in unhealthy cycles in our lives. We try to fill a need. We do something bad. We feel guilt and shame about what we've done, so we try to do something good to balance the scales. We go to church. We listen. We feel better. We pray. We promise God that we'll never do that thing, whatever it is, again, if God will just forgive us. And that commitment lasts for a little while, and then we find ourselves doing that thing again. Now we feel even worse because we promised God we wouldn't do it again, and there we are, we're doing it again. That reinforces the idea that we're worthless, and so the shame and the guilt build. Why would God want to talk to us now? Not only have we done the thing, we promised we wouldn't, but we've done it again and broken our promise. Why would God want to hear from us? So we don't pray. We stop going to church, and on and on we go in this cycle of a need that leads to a bad behavior and shame and guilt and broken promises, and this downward spiral just continues in our lives. 
And the cycle for us is just as real as it was for Hosea and Gomer. They would have felt as much guilt and shame over the family disaster they were living through as we do. And the breaking the cycle, it came at an expense. It took redemption. Someone had to pay Gomer's debt. The story of Hosea and Gomer mirrors the story of redemption that would come hundreds of years later in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Peter put it this way. He said, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Peter says that outside of a relationship with God, every one of us is trapped in an empty, dead-end way of life. That downward spiral of guilt and shame. But the purchase price to secure our freedom has already been paid. And it wasn't paid with silver and gold. It was paid for with the blood of Christ, God's own Son. And the mediator who stepped in and said, I'll pay the debt, was Jesus, who voluntarily came and died for us. It can be easy for us to view ourselves like Gomer did, standing in the marketplace, feeling dirty, ashamed, unworthy, unlovable. Our shame can speak so loudly that we can't hear anything else. And if we look at our actions alone, it can feel true. But God loves to show his grace through Jesus. He loves nothing more than extending grace to people who don't deserve it. And the truth is, none of us deserve it. And he paid an outrageous price to cover our guilt and carry our shame to the cross. An outrageous price. At some point, Gomer had to face her fears and square off with the barriers she had erected to receiving Hosea's love and the grace he extended. If she was going to build that relationship with him. She had to dare to let his grace get below the surface of her shame and guilt. Each of us, if we're going to build a relationship with God, has to come to that point as well. Facing our guilt comes down to confessing our sin to God. Owning up to what we've done. For some who are here, that means for the very first time in your life, owning your sin, owning the things that you've done wrong, and acknowledging the fact that that debt has already been paid. It's not something you have to do. And just simply accepting the fact that Jesus has paid the debt for you. Accepting that free gift. And simply stating that you want to live your life for him. Building a relationship with Jesus. For others of us who've already taken that step, it's the daily act of confessing and applying that grace to our lives. Removing the guilt daily because the work has already been done. 
And yet some of us insist in still carrying the guilt around. Why? Why do we beat ourselves up and carry the guilt? Romans 8 says we're not under condemnation anymore. The work's been done. The daily fight for us is to believe it, to accept it, to live like it, so that shame doesn't build and worm its way into our souls. Shame, that's a little different story than guilt. Its roots are deeper. It's tougher to find something to confess around shame. Because shame just makes us feel bad about ourselves, makes us feel like we're a loser. Jesus didn't die just to remove our guilt. He died to remove our shame as well. God offers us a new identity in Christ. And we're going to dig into that next week. An identity that helps us live differently every day of our lives. We don't have to live as slaves to guilt and shame. Because God has freed us. God bought you with a high price. You. He knew you and loved you before the foundations of the earth were laid. And he made a decision to purchase you, to redeem you through the blood of his son so that you can walk differently with a confidence in God. The one who walks beside us always, not because of our behavior, not because of we deserve it, but because of his character, because of his grace, because of his love for you. And walking with our head held high means that we get to stop telling ourselves that we're awful or worthless or unloved by God. We get to walk and stop telling ourselves that we will never change. And the walk that we walk isn't a proud walk. It's not a cocky walk. It's not a strut. It's a redemptive, humble walk with God. It's a humble swagger. Because of God's greatness. Because of God's mercy. Because God has our back. It's a spring in our step that results from realizing that no matter what anybody else thinks about us, no matter what anyone else will say about us, God has redeemed us. He pursued us when no one else saw any value in us. He bought us off the auction block and he paid an incredibly huge price to call us his own. And by his grace, he loves us more than we'll ever know.